Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. We're going to spend two more weeks in our study through John, and then over the summer, starting in June, for nine weeks, we're going to be looking in the book of Proverbs in a series I've entitled Wise Up. We could all use more wisdom, and we're going to seek to grow in wisdom from the collection of wisdom in our Bible, the book of Proverbs. You know, there's lots of uh, great verses, little snippets of information in the book of Proverbs, and one of my favorite Proverbs is this one, cleanliness is next to godliness. (laughs) Actually, that's not in the Bible. Um, Now, I don't have anything against cleanliness. I take a shower at least once a week, whether I need it or not, but that's not actually in the Bible. Here's some other phrases you may have heard that are sometimes attributed to the Bible, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I say that at almost every graveside funeral I perform, but it's not actually in the Bible. Confession is good for the soul. That's a truism, and it it is true we should confess our sins to God. The Bible even tells us to confess our sins to one another, but that's actually not in the Bible. God moves in mysterious ways. That's actually not a phrase in the Bible. It's It's a 1774 hymn by William Cowper. Here's some more. Uh, let your conscience be your guide. I would actually say no. That's probably not a good idea. To err is human. To forgive is divine. Now, it is true. We are to forgive one another, but that phrase is not in the Bible either. How about this one? When God closes one door, he opens another. To thine own self be true. That's actually Shakespeare from the play Hamlet. Now, many of these are very close to the Bible or they're based on or derived from biblical wisdom. Another phrase that's often attributed to the Bible is this one, God helps those who help themselves. The thing about this one is it's actually contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to the Bible. See, the Bible teaches that God helps those who are helpless. God helps those who are unable to help themselves. God helps those who are incapable of helping themselves themselves and freely admit that. Well, this is the exact situation that's going to be described in the passage we're going to study today in John chapter 5. As we turn the page to this new chapter, we're going to see that there's somebody who does not have the capacity to help himself, and Jesus helps him. The title of my sermon this morning is this, Do You Want to Be Healed? It's a question Jesus asks him. Do you want to be healed? Let's read our focal text, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 17 of John 5. This is God's word. Hear it. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, 
the man who healed me. The man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. One of the things I hope you are learning as we are going through the Gospel of John, this is now sermon number 20 through our series through this gospel account, is that you may not know Jesus as well as you think you know Jesus. You may not know Jesus as well as you think you know Jesus. We are very familiar with Jesus. We read about Jesus. We hear stories about Jesus. We do studies about Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. Many of us, most of us, have been around Jesus virtually our whole lives. But if you pay attention to Jesus as John presents him in this gospel, what you realize is that Jesus often surprises us by what he says and what he does. He certainly surprised those in the first century, sometimes not just surprised, but shocked them and sometimes even absolutely scandalized them. And if you and I will set aside for a moment the sanitized Jesus, the safe Jesus, the cuddly precious moments Jesus, and we'll look at the Jesus as he's presented by his best friend John and pay attention to this Jesus. He may shock us as well. He certainly did it in the first century. Would he do it in the 21st century? Now, in chapter 5, we turn a little bit in the road to a new focus that John is having because what we find happening in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 10 is Jesus is going to engage in several confrontations and conflicts with Jewish leaders, with other teachers, with Pharisees and scribes and rulers. And there are a series of these confrontations that happen around Jewish festivals. These are festivals that happen usually in Jerusalem, and there were several festivals throughout the year that Jews who lived within a certain uh, radius of Jerusalem were expected, were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship, to offer sacrifices. And what Jesus does, sometimes very straightforwardly, sometimes very uh, shadowy, is that he reveals that these festivals are actually fulfilled in him. They are, in fact, just shadows. They're just prefigurements of the true. He's the true. They are the shadow. He's the reality. They predict the person and the work that Jesus will accomplish. And he takes the opportunity in the midst of these festivals to confront the Jewish leaders and scholars. Now, up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus's conversations have primarily been with individuals. You have in chapter 3, his conversation with Nicodemus at night, an individual. You have his conversation in chapter 4 with the woman at the well, an individual. You have at the end of chapter 4, his conversation of Herod's official who had a sick son, an individual. Even this 
account begins with a conversation with an individual, this disabled man by the pool of Bethesda. But now it shifts in focus, even in this passage, to groups, namely religious leaders. There are two paragraphs in our text, and I've got two main points that are uh, emerging from these two paragraphs. I want us to consider about Jesus and his great work of salvation. The first one is this. Number one, he has compassion on our disability. Jesus has compassion on our disability. He is concerned with our invalid status. Now, upon me making those statements, some of you may bristle a little bit and say, hold on a second, I don't have a disability. Hold on a second, I'm not an invalid. I don't have a handicap. And I would say, not so fast. The text tells us that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. When we left him in chapter 4, he was up in Galilee. Now he's traveled south. We don't know how long after that series of events in Galilee. He travels back down south to Jerusalem. And this is the second time John records him being in Jerusalem. The first time in chapter 2 is when he went into the temple, and what did he do there? He turned over tables. He drove out the money changers and the sellers of animals. Now he's back in Jerusalem again, and this is an occasion for Christ coming to Jerusalem for a, quote, feast of the Jews. It's an unnamed feast. We don't know what feast it is. There, again, were several feasts throughout the year. And in Jerusalem, it was the central place for the celebration of these feasts. And at this Jewish festival, as he's in Jerusalem again, like a good Jew would be during these festivals, he uses it as, as an opportunity to display his compassion for disability. And I want us to understand his compassion in a couple of ways. First of all, he seeks after the broken. Jesus very purposefully and intentionally seeks after the broken. Again, the central focus of these festivals and of these feasts would have been the temple complex. That's where people gathered. That's where people brought their offerings. That's where sacrifices of animals were made. That's where worship was accomplished. But Jesus doesn't go to the temple. Where does he go? He goes to a pool. Oh, good, taking the disciples for a swim. (laughs) No, not that kind of pool. It's a different pool. This particular pool was a place that was known as a location where those who are destitute would gather. Verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The, The pool, John tells us, has five roofed colonnades. And some skeptics of the Bible a hundred years ago, said, well, this is obviously a made-up portion because they hadn't discovered yet this roofed colonnade, five roofed colonnades in this pool. But actually, within the last century, archaeological digs have discovered the actual uh, roofed colonnade or the pool where uh, this took place. The pool has a name in Aramaic. It's Bethesda. You may have heard of Bethlehem. That means house of bread. Bethesda means house of outpouring. And what an appropriate name for the pool for what Jesus will accomplish here, a house of outpouring. And it became a place, again, where these folks with severe disabilities, many would gather. Now, why was this a gathering place for people with disabilities? Well, there was a superstition that had developed around this pool. And the superstition was this. This pool was 
had water that came into it from runoff, but also it was a spring-fed pool at certain times of the year. And so there, if you've ever seen a pool that is somewhat spring-fed, you'll notice from time to time on the surface of that water, these little swirls will appear, right? As water comes up from underneath, this swirling happens on the top of the water. And here's the superstition that developed, that whenever the swirl happened on the surface of the water, what that meant was an angel from heaven had come down and he was kind of stirring the water. And if you jumped in the water right when the angel was stirring it, then you could be healed of whatever disability or illness or sickness you have. Now, you may have noticed when we read the text that the verse numberings in our Bibles are a little wonky. There's no verse 4, unless you have a King James Version. Verse 4 is missing. Why? Because the, the best scholarship, the oldest manuscripts, in other words, the copies of the New Testament that are closest to John's original, do not contain verse 4. And so scholars believe that, like the King James was, was based upon the Latin Vulgate and, and manuscripts that were younger or newer than what the older ones are, Verse 4, most believe, was just a copyist put in the, that as an explanation. Uh, this is why they did this, but it's not in the original. And so, uh, likely in your Bible, you may have it as a footnote. If you have an NASB or an ESV, here's what the footnote says. This was the copyist's commentary, if you will. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So again, this is the superstition. And I believe it's best to leave it as a footnote because it is a myth. It's not Bible truth. Now, interestingly, this text describes in verse 3 the people who gathered there as invalids. Invalids. You know there's another way to pronounce that word invalid? How? Invalid. And really, that was true. These invalids in society had become invalid. They were outcast from society. The only way they could survive as an invalid was through begging, through stealing, or through manipulating people. And so if you were a festival goer who has traveled to Jerusalem from some other remote village, the last place you would go is a, where there's a collection of invalids who are begging these invalids who are lame, paralyzed, blind, they're crawling on their hands and knees just to get around. They're dirty. They're ugly. They don't look good. They don't smell good. You're coming to Jerusalem for the party. You're coming to Jerusalem for the feast, for the festivities, for the markets, for the selling. The last place you would go is among the dregs of society. But the first place Jesus goes is not to the temple but to the pool of Bethesda where the lame and the weak why because Jesus seeks after the broken and aren't you thankful for that I am do you know why we're all broken we're all messed up we're all handicapped we're all debilitated it's interesting, this same word that's translated invalid in John chapter 5, the root word of that invalid is also used in Romans chapter 5 verse 6 to describe our status apart from Christ. Notice what Romans 5 verse 6 and following says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word weak in verse 6 of Romans 5, same root word that's translated invalid in John 5. The King James translates this as without power. The New American Standard translates that word as helpless. The NIV translates that word as powerless. We were all invalids before Christ, weak, helpless, powerless, apart from Jesus, paralyzed spiritually. In fact, the Bible catalogs our handicap as being from head to toe. Notice what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 1, verse 6. He said, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. This is our condition. This is our brokenness. We are disabled from head to toe. We are spiritual paraplegics. Now, in theology, there's a word for this. There's a phrase. The, the terminology is total depravity or the total depravity of man. What does that phrase mean, total depravity? Well, it does not mean that we are always evil all the time and that we are incapable of doing anything good. What it does mean is that we can be bad. There is always room for deprovement. I could be much worse than what I am. Just give me more time and more money and I'll sin more, right? And you would too. It's because of total depravity. What that means is every fiber of us is impacted and infected with the disease of sin. It's comprehensive corruption. You've probably heard people talking maybe about a friend or a family member who's maybe been arrested for a crime or done some other bad thing. Or this is especially what you will hear from someone who has been abused by an abuser. They'll say this, well, he's got a good heart. And I want to say in the kindest way possible, no, he does not. He does not have a good heart. The Bible says he has a corrupt heart that is desperately sick. From our hearts flow all kinds of evil. We are totally depraved. We're desperately sick. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in us. Our hearts are biggest problem. But in times of clarity, we'll recognize I got some problems. I got some issues. In our humanness, we'll try to find remedies for that problem. We'll try to find help for those issues. The problem is, where do we look for that peace? Where do we look for that healing? Where do we look to try to find wholeness? Well, really the same place this beggar looked, we pursue the bogus. We pursue the bogus. Interestingly, at this pool of broken people, for whatever reason, lots of broken people, lots of disabled people, the Lord Jesus zeroes in on one. One guy. One paraplegic. Look at verse 5 and following again. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. This man was desperate, desperate for healing power. Like so many people today, people are desperate for something that's going to salve the pain, something that's going to heal the wounds, something that's going to bring some type of power. And the same is true today. People pursue the bogus. They believe in the superstitious. They go after these purveyors of alleged power because they think it's going to bring some type of healing. I was in Peru about a decade ago, and the week that I was there happened to be the week of July 19th, and I wasn't aware that that week, July 19th, is the largest Roman Catholic Peruvian festival known as Lord of the Miracles. And the festival is centered on one painting that is a depiction of Jesus. And this painting supposedly, when you look at it, you reach out towards it, it has healing powers. And if you just stand beside it when it processes beside you, you can be healed of your diseases. You can be healed of your afflictions. You can experience prosperity that you're longing for. And so once a year, in Lima, Peru, 12 million people, this special fraternity of men put this painting on a platform and they carry it through the streets where hundreds of thousands of people are aligned with their hands outstretched, longing for a miracle. Now, I was in the village of Alis, which is a small village up in the Andes Mountains, about 12,000 feet up, with only about 300 people in the village. But they did, had a replica of this painting, the Lord of the Miracles, and they did a parade through the small village. And people brought out their sick and set them on the street in front of their homes, hoping that as this passed by and they reached out, they would be healed. Bogus! Superstition! It's not real! People are longing for it. We're inclined to the bogus. It's not just Roman Catholics. Evangelicals are inclined to the bogus. Several years ago, there was a very popular book. I'm not going to mention the title, but some of you will remember it that put forward an obscure prayer from the Old Testament and said, this pattern of prayer, if you follow the steps of this pattern of prayer, God will answer your prayers. Friends, it's not the formula of prayer you pray that, that brings you success or benefit or blessing. It's the God to whom we pray. A superstition. So many evangelical charlatans Selling their miracle spring water. You write a check. We'll send you an anointed prayer cloth. You send your donation. We'll give you some oil from Israel. Not any better than oil from Walmart. Superstition. It's bogus. Friends, it's not just the religious who tend towards the superstitious and the bogus. People are endlessly searching for healing for their broken bodies and their broken souls. Our society is a veritable factory of candidates to be laying beside the pool of Bethesda. Those who have been rejected. Those who have been abused. Those who have been neglected. Those who are lonely. Those who are 
warped in heart, those who on the outside appear to have it all together, but inside they're desperately broken and they're deeply seeking power. So what do they do? They jump from this fad to this program, take this pill, this therapy, this meditation, this medication, and seemingly intelligent, educated people indulge in the trendiest of fads that promise such things. How else can you explain people hanging a Native American so-called dream catcher from their rearview mirror? This circle made of horsehair with little feathers hanging from it. Oh, this will ward off the bad juju and bring me the good juju so I can get a good night's sleep. That's bogus. All right, let me position these aromatic crystals around my home and my workplace so that I can get some really good vibes. It's bogus. Only Christ offers power for what healing we need. This is all superstition. It's all myth. Graduates, if any of you are inclined to be an author, let me tell you how you can make a lot of money as an author. Write self-help books. Because the people who buy them are never cured and they just keep buying the same self-help books. And you'll make a lot of money if you can write self-help books. One fad, one quick fix, but they'll never believe the gospel of Jesus. Just like this man beside the pool, we can pursue the superstitious, the bogus, but the good news is that Jesus came personally to him. And he asked him a question. Look at verse 6 again, what his question was. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, for somebody who's been disabled and lame for 38 years, that may sound on the surface like a very insensitive question, an uncaring question. Do you want to be healed? Duh. But it's actually very insightful. Here's why. We learn to live with our disabilities. Our disabilities, our brokenness, our failures, our flaws, they become pets to us that we coax and we care for. We get used to them. They become a part of our identity. We get comfortable with them. For instance, those who walk alongside people who are struggling with addictions, they will tell you they won't be healed unless they want to be healed. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? People who struggle with unforgiveness, unresolved anger towards people who have wronged them, that unforgiveness, again, becomes like a little baby they're caring for. Have you heard of the phrase, nursing a grudge? What is nursing? Feeding a bottle, breastfeeding. I've got this anger. I've got this unforgiveness, but I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm going to nurse it. It's part of who I am. It's part of my identity. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Jesus comes to this lame beggar, and it's actually a very good question. But watch this. It's a yes or no question. But the beggar doesn't say yes or no. How does he respond? In verse 7, we see his response, and it appears to me, I could be wrong, but it appears to me This is a well-rehearsed response. 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. One commentator I read referred to this response as, quote, victimitis. Victimitis. He's learned how to be a victim, and he's learned how to respond out of that victim status. And so when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He just gives all the reasons why he's a victim. I have no one to put me in the pool. Can't go down there myself. Once I get there by myself, people get in front of me. I'm a victim. He's used to telling that story. And friends, we can do the same thing. We can have this victimitis. We can justify and excuse our own brokenness. Maybe you've heard some of these phrases. That's just how I am. You ever heard that? My dad never told me he loved me. It's the way I was raised. Can't help it. I'm Irish. That's why I got a short temper. That's just who I am. You're going to have to get used to it. Excuses. Victimitis. <laughs> and Jesus has news for you. He doesn't want to leave you in your broken condition. He wants to bring healing to your life. He doesn't even address these excuses. He doesn't even talk about his superstition. He just heals the man with a word. Jesus has compassion on our disability. Would you admit with me, I'm disabled, I'm broken, I'm handicapped, I'm an invalid, and I am invalid? Jesus pursues the broken. But notice the second thing about Jesus from our passage. Secondly, he will confront our depravity. Again, Jesus is not content to leave us in our broken condition, and he aims to bring healing power. He aims to bring renewal, and in order to do that, he will confront our own personal depravity. He will confront our sinfulness. Jesus will confront the deep things in our heart where we are at rebellion with God. At the end of the day, that's a, a good definition for sin. Rebellion against God. Before we meet him, after we meet him, he will continue to confront our rebellion against him. Because here's the deal. God is different than us. That may not sound very profound, but it is. God is in the other category. What that means is he is very different from us. And the more we get to know him, the more we begin to realize how much different God is from us. And here's the biggest difference. He's perfect and we are not. And here's what the Bible says in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We got a long way to go, don't we? We come to know God. We realize there's a huge gap between us and God. And what we should expect and what we should anticipate when we draw near to the true God of the Bible is he will challenge everything in your life. He'll challenge your relationships. He'll challenge your priorities. He'll challenge your passions. He'll challenge 
uh, your affections. He'll challenge the way you think. He'll challenge the way you speak. Why? Because he's perfect and we are not. And from chapter 5 through chapter 10, what we see Jesus doing, the God of the universe is challenging, confronting, and correcting over and over again. We just sang a moment ago, the last song we sang, Come As You Are. And that is 100% true. Love that song by David Crowder. But we leave (laughs) our brokenness. We come as we are, but Jesus is not content to keep us as we are. And that's what we see happen in the second half of this passage and really through the rest of the Gospel of John. Now, in this confrontation here in this passage, Jesus reveals some profound realities about our own depravity, about our own sinfulness, and also his divine saving answer to that depravity. The first one is this. He confronts our personal self-rule. Our personal self-rule. I want you to think about this man. Here's someone who's been completely healed of a handicap he's lived with for 38 years. I was about to say I'm, I'm almost 38 years old now. I'm a long ways from 38 now. Sheesh. I was 39 when I came here as your pastor. I'm long from that now. He had a debilitating handicap. He's totally invalid. And now what is he able to do? Get up, walk, carry his bed, go to the festival. He hadn't been able to go to the festival for 38 years. He's going to worship in the temple. He could have never done that before. He now has a wonderful opportunity. And as he goes into the temple, there's the religious leaders, there's the Jewish officials. And what does he do? He's walking in, carrying his sleeping bag. And they said, hey, what are you doing? You're carrying a sleeping bag on the Sabbath day. What does he say? Uh, the man who healed me told me to do that. The man who healed me said, take my bed and walk. I'm just doing what that guy who healed me told me to do. Does this sound familiar? He'll go all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. God comes to Adam. Why'd you do it, Adam? This woman you gave me, (laughs) she told me to eat. Eve, why'd you do it? That snake you put in the garden, he told me to eat. Passing the buck. Casting blame on others. Playing the victim. It's not my fault. I'm just a victim of my circumstances. There was a man. He told me to carry my mat. It's not my fault. Who was he? Oh, you know what? I did not catch his name. Who was that guy? I don't know. He, he healed me, and then he told me to carry my mat. Could you imagine being an invalid for 38 years, unable to walk, and all of a sudden you're healed immediately? You stand up. You can carry your bed. You're walking, and you don't even try to find out who it was that did it. You don't go after him. Can somebody tell me his name? I'm going to follow this guy for the rest of my life. Total self-absorption, total self-rule. Jesus himself now leaves the pool of Bethesda. He makes his way to the temple, and he very intentionally goes and finds the man that he healed. And basically, he says to him, you know, you're not completely healed. (laughs) Yeah, physically you're healed, but you're not completely healed. He could walk now for the first time, but 
Look at what Jesus said to him in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, a little disclaimer here. There is in the Bible multiple occasions the truth and the reality that your personal suffering, sickness, disease, loss, may not necessarily be directly connected to some personal sin in your life. This is what people believed in Jesus' day and even today. If you remember Job in the Old Testament and his friends, after they witnessed all the calamity that he went through, they said, well, Job, you obviously got some really bad sin you haven't confessed yet. You better find out what that sin is and confess it. Because of this belief that any suffering was directly connected to sin. In fact, when you go forward from here, chapter 5 to, to chapter 9 of John, we'll see in the first verses of John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples come across a blind man. Look at John, John 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, your suffering may not necessarily be directly connected to some sin in your life or your parents' life or somebody else's life. However, there is the possibility that your suffering could be directly connected to your sin or someone else's sin. Ask anyone who's a victim of a drunk driver. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, he says, you guys are taking the communion meal in an unworthy manner. This is exactly why some of you are sick and some have even died. There's a connection between the suffering and the sin. In fact, the clearest display of a connection directly between suffering and sin is the final judgment. When people are condemned to hell forever, that suffering is directly connected to their sin. Sometimes there is a connection. In fact, I would say the severest, the, the most excruciating suffering any human on the planet has ever endured was the suffering Jesus endured on the cross. Not so much the crucifixion and the beatings and the nails and the thorns in his skull, though that was certainly suffering but the suffering he endured by being separated from fellowship with the Father that he had enjoyed for all of eternity when the darkness of sin came upon his back and he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ultimate human suffering. But make no mistake, that suffering can be directly connected to sin. Not Jesus' sin, your sin and my sin. And so Jesus calls upon this healed man, you're well, see you're well. But he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Well, what could possibly be worse than 38 years of paralysis? How about eternity in hell? Don't sin anymore. Find Absolve, uh, absolution for your sin so that nothing worse may happen to you. But not only does Jesus confront this man's self-rule, Jesus also confronts, secondly, religious self-righteousness. Religious 
self-righteousness. Verse 16 says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. If you look up in your Bibles at verse 9, this paragraph, which happens in the middle of verse 9, begins with this phrase, now that day was the Sabbath. John, the gospel writer, is is with great intentionality, wants you, the reader, to know this happened on the Sabbath day. Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath day. He told this man to get up and take his bed and to walk on the Sabbath day. Now, here was the rule. The Sabbath day, created by God, one of the Ten Commandments, was given as a day of what? Rest. The Hebrew word, Shabbat, literally means rest or intermission. The Sabbath was intended by God as a good thing, as a blessing for his people. You work six days, take a day off. That sounds like a good thing, right? It's a beneficial thing. It's a blessed thing. But these Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had taken this Sabbath that was intended by God to be a blessing to the people and it turned it into a burden for the people. Why? Because they added all these stipulations, all these regulations, all these rules to try to help the people not break the Sabbath. So, well, make sure you don't do this because that would be considered work. Make sure you don't do this because this would be breaking the Sabbath. Make sure you don't do that. And so there's all these man-made traditions. Even to this day, as I understand it, and I looked it up, so Google is always right, so sure, this is true. In the city of Jerusalem, some hotels actually have what's called a Shabbat elevator, Sabbath elevator. Here's what it is. On Saturday, on the Sabbath, the elevator opens automatically and stops at every floor and opens. Why? Because strict Sabbatarians believe pushing a button is work. And I can't work on the Sabbath, so I better not be caught pushing a button on an elevator. So they have Shabbat elevators so that you don't have to work by pushing a button, right? This is the lunacy that was stacked on top of this day that was intended to be a blessing to the people but now had become a burden for the people. And we may say, well, that's just harmless religious tradition. No, it's personal religious self-righteousness. These kind of traditions, these types of Rituals, they can't help but foster in people a thought of personal self-righteousness. Well, I wear these kind of clothes, or I do this kind of thing, or I don't do this kind of thing, that, that I, I keep this rule-keeping, I follow this legalistic code of conduct, I'm actually more spiritual than those people who don't. Have you seen this before? Sure. <laughs> I'm more acceptable to God. I'll have a better seat in heaven. Because I keep this list and check these boxes. It's religious self-righteousness, and Jesus is very intentionally confronting it. Over and over again, he heals on the Sabbath for this very reason. I'm going to poke your religious traditions. Jesus didn't just say, get up and walk. He said, get up, take your bed, and walk on the Sabbath, knowing full well that was breaking the traditions of man on the Sabbath day. And these religious leaders absolutely despise Jesus because of it. Jesus confronts again and again their religious self-righteousness. So here's a question that they would have asked. Jesus, what gives you the right? Who made you the arbiter of what is good and what is bad? 
What gives you the right to question our traditions and our rituals? What gives you the right to tell people to break our traditions and our rituals? Well, he answers that question by confronting their depravity with this third thing, his divine self-revelation. In verse 17, Jesus makes a divine self-revelation. Here's the deal. The Jewish people understood and believed and taught that God gave them the Sabbath to rest, to not work on, and so they added all these rituals on top of it so they would not work. However, they did not believe that God himself quit working on the Sabbath. Why? Well, who's going to hold the universe up if God quits working on the Sabbath day? The universe is held up by the word of his power. It's the power of God that keeps all things together and consisting in the orbits of the planets. God is always working, and Jesus affirms this truth that they believe. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. In other words, he doesn't take the Sabbath day off. God has given the Sabbath for you to rest, but he does not take the Sabbath off. Otherwise, the universe would collapse upon itself. But notice what Jesus also says, and I am working. What's he saying? What is he communicating to them? My father is working. The Sabbath is to stop work, but my father keeps on working, and I am working. What's the theme of these messages? Jesus is God. And he's saying to the religious leaders, you all know and you teach, God is always working. And guess what? I am always working. This is why they hated him. He claimed to be God. They know exactly what he is claiming. The Sabbath day created by God and intended by God to be a blessing to his people, not a burden. The religious leaders hadn't made it a burden. Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? I'm going to reinterpret the Sabbath to the people. In fact, notice what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man. It's intended to be a blessing, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, if the premise is true that Jesus is God, then who created the Sabbath day? Jesus. <laughs> so who has the right to interpret what the Sabbath should look like? Answer? Jesus. He's God. And this is what sets up the showdown between Jesus and these religious leaders in the chapters to come. Israel, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, it becomes a virtual battleground where these warring happens between the religious leaders and Jesus. This battle between self-righteous religion and liberating freedom that comes through Jesus alone. Was this battle still raging today? Yes, but the battlefield is not on a dusty road in Galilee or in the temple courts in Jerusalem, the battleground where these forces clash violently each and every day is in your heart. In your heart. Every day you wake up with a tendency to self-rule. I'm in charge. I just graduated high school. I just graduated college. I'm the master of my domain. 
I'm the captain of my, oh, my, my own ship. Not so fast. The battleground where self-rule and Jesus liberating freedom happens in the human heart. The battleground where religious self-righteousness, but I've done all this, and the freedom that comes in Jesus is the battleground of your own heart. And so let me give you a little advice as I close on how to fight this battle. This week, it'll happen not once or twice, but likely hundreds of times. The battle will rage. Here's your strategy for the battle. You ready? I surrender. I give up. I submit to your rule, Jesus. You are the Lord of my life. You're the Lord of my passions. You're the Lord of my desires. You're the Lord of my body. You're the Lord of my listening. You're the Lord of my speaking. You're the Lord of my affections. I surrender. Sometimes in our congregation, while we're singing particularly, if you're new here, you may notice and wonder what this is about. There will be times when people will lift a hand up. No, they're not asking a question. I, I, I have a question. <laughs> Why do they lift their hands when we worship and when we sing sometimes? For one, 1 Timothy chapter 2 instructs us to lift holy hands in prayer, and our singing is certainly a prayer to God, and so we are instructed to lift hands. But both hands lifted up is an international sign of what? Surrender. I got no weapons. <laughs> I got no form of defense. I've got nothing I'm clinging to, nothing I'm holding to. I release it all. I surrender all. And this week, when the battle rages in your heart, and it will, here's your strategy for the fight. I give up, Jesus. <laughs> I surrender. You rule. You reign. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? If you do, the only option, complete surrender to Jesus as Lord. That's the best place to be in the world, and it is the ultimate place of healing and rest. And that leads to my last thought. Jesus is Lord over sickness, and Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. This means he alone can bring ultimate healing and rest. And he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You want rest? Come as you are. Surrender all. Let's go to him in prayer.